Hi, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt. Ward Wilson is widely acknowledged as the leading source of innovative, pragmatic arguments against nuclear weapons in the world today. He has been a senior fellow at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, BASIC, the British American Security Information Council, and the Federation of American Scientists. He is currently the executive director of Realist Revolt, a grassroots advocacy organization in the Chicago area. We're really excited to talk with him, so let's get into the episode. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate you taking the time and reaching out. And we're really excited to hear all about, you know, your realist argument against nuclear weapons. We're just very uh, intrigued. What do you have to offer? I'm really pleased to be here. I uh, have listened to a couple of the uh, podcasts and um, really liked what you were saying and kind of where you're headed. So and I think that fundamentally we need disruption in this debate. It's, it's frozen. So glad to be here. Um, well, if you wanted to start off um, kind of with our first discussion question and um, tell us your argument about um, realism and nuclear weapons, because I think um, most people would associate realism um, with this like power hungry pro nuclear weapons stance. Um, but you take the opposite approach. So um, I'd love to hear more about your argument. Okay. Um, it does seem counterintuitive if you've grown up in the existing framework of the debate, but it's, when you stop and think about it, it's not that strange a position since nuclear weapons represent a huge danger and it's realistic to be worried about dangers. So, um, I'm a common sense realist. Um, there is a thing in international relations or IR uh, called realism, but that's not my style of realism. I believe in facts and, um, and kind of common sense having to face the harsh realities of the world. And if you think about it, there are almost no facts in the nuclear weapons field. Um, basically all we have is Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The weapons were used twice. They've been tested a bunch, but the history of military weapons shows that, you know, tests don't really tell you anything realistic about how, what the impact of the weapon will be like on the battlefield, how it will change war. And so, um, so that's a problem. If you don't, if you've got this huge and dangerous problem and you don't really know that much about it, that's that is a concern that any realist would be able to <laughs> grasp. And um, so what happened in the 50s when they were trying to formulate policy for the first time is that they had to base what they were thinking on on assumptions. And assumptions are just intuitions or guesses or best, you know, estimates. So um, that's, it's perfectly realistic to question assumptions, particularly because, you know, the assumptions that 
were created during the Cold War, which was a time of enormous fear and, and people don't do their best thinking when they're afraid. So there's every reason to think that maybe those assumptions might have been skewed or distorted by fear or paranoia or anxiety. Um, and so it makes sense to go back and double check the math of those first uh, thinkers. And it, and it especially makes sense because if you look at some of those assumptions, um, they seem kind of doubtful when you stop and think about it. I mean, people say all the time, nuclear weapons will always exist. They say it again and again and again, and then you kind of get used to hearing it. You say, well, I guess nuclear weapons will always exist. But that actually doesn't line up with our experience with any other technology, really. Technology evolves and old technology falls out of use, gets abandoned. That's the reality of technology. It doesn't get disinvented, for instance, which is something else that nuclear weapons people say, or at least the, the pro-nuclear weapons people say, well, you can't disinvent nuclear weapons, which is silly. I mean, it's true, but it's only true because disinvention is an imaginary process. You know, it's a little saying that you can't disinvent nuclear weapons, they'll always be around because you can't disinvent them, is a little like me saying, well, I'm going to live forever because I can't be reverse born, which is silly. It's true. I can't be reverse born, but reverse borning doesn't exist. So you, you see some of these arguments, and it's not just the disinvention one, but a whole series of assumptions that seem doubtful. And you start to scratch your head and say, well, you know, hmm, that's odd. I wonder if we ought to go back and take a second look. I think you make a lot of really interesting points. The first I was thinking about was, you know, it's not like we use the same technology in the Stone Age, right? Like that wasn't disinvented. We just don't use it anymore because we have better tools and better approaches to dealing with problems. Yeah. Um, so I guess... What you were saying that made me really think was, okay, so there's this argument against nuclear weapons, but what should we do, you know, about how to structure policy, both on an American front and an international front, when we're thinking about these weapons? Well, I think the first thing you have to, the, so, so what have we got? What do we, what's the current situation? Robert Kennedy says it's okay to be idealistic. It's important to be idealistic. It's essential to be idealistic but you have to deal with the world as it is. You have to start with the realities. So what are we confronted with? And what we're confronted with is a doctrine based on assumptions that has existed pretty much unchanged for 70 years. And that is uh, probably unlikely to change because it's, a, uh, it's defended quite aggressively. So, the first thing you need to do is to, so the problem isn't anything inherent in nuclear weapons. We don't need a technological solution. And the problem isn't anything inherent in the diplomatic um, terrain. So we don't need to restructure our diplomacy. The problem is a series of ideas that policymakers have gotten into their heads. So fundamentally what we need is what revolutions are 
born from, which is a revolution in ideas. That's the first step. You need to change how we think about this so that when people say, well, you know, they can't be disinvented, we all scoff, giggle, put our hands over our mouths and say, well, that's a stupid thing to say, rather than nod seriously and say, oh, you're an expert, so you must be right. Um, so that's the first thing, policy. Um, and then I think the problem with nuclear weapons experts is they were trained up in this stuff. They went to graduate school for it. They talked to their friends using the language of the field, which is full of jargon, has exotic theories that don't apply to any other field. And they learn this kind of separate language, almost a separate reality. And then they give, are given this enormous responsibility that makes them terribly nervous to never use nuclear weapons, which would scare anyone if they took it seriously. You're in charge of the nuclear arsenal. That's, that is not a happy phrase to hear. Um, and so they, what I would do if someone did that is they taught me a bunch of stuff and then they put me under pressure, is I would cling to those initial beliefs even more strongly. And so my sense is that it might be possible to talk those experts and government officials out of their stupid positions, but I don't think it's likely. So what that means is that the politically, the next, the, you know, the first step is to have this revolution in thinking. And then the second step is to spread that revolution in thinking in thinking to a lot of people ordinary people, not just policymakers, because anyone who's, and although people, politicians are probably more open to changing their minds than experts because they haven't been trained in the field and learned all this stuff. So first step is have a revolution in thinking. Second step is spread it widely. Do I sound like a Che Guevara enthusiast or something? Honestly, I love it. And I feel like so much of what you've said um, uh, speaks largely to uh, power dynamics and how um, people in power have sort of like held on to this idea that nuclear weapons are so necessary. Um, like we can't, something I've heard so many times is, yeah, we can get rid of nuclear weapons, but what you're saying about disinvention, like you can't take the knowledge out of the nuclear scientists' heads. And it's like, well, I mean, we've all agreed that chemical weapons are bad and that knowledge to manufacture those is not gone, but we've generally agreed not to use those. Why can't we do the same thing of nuclear weapons? And so I can't help but think about um, all the different like vested interests in maintaining this nuclear order, um, whether it's through kind of what you said about um, these specific theories within international relations, jargon, language, um, the construct of separate realities. Um, and I really do like what you were saying about bringing a wider audience into caring about nuclear issues, because I, I also see that a lot um, where that's like, it's really only a thing that foreign policy experts or politicians care about. Um, and people normal people, I guess, it's like, how do nukes relate to me? Um, how does this relate to my everyday life? And, you know, like feeding my family, going to work, um, going about my day-to-day -day activities. Um, 
and I think that's one of the challenges is getting people to care about nuclear weapons again, sort of like they did during the Cold War when there were a lot of public feelings about that. Yeah, the Cold War was kind of unique in that there were um, fallout shelter symbols on public buildings and regular tests of the emergency broadcast system. And sometimes they test the sirens in your town. You know, now we're going to have a test for nuclear war. Oh, okay. And they taught, you know, they had little kids crawling under desks and saying, get ready for the first moments of a nuclear war. It'll be just like this, kids. And they all, you know, spent years and years in therapy. Um, so, and yeah, the problem, you're exactly right about chemical and biological weapons. The, we didn't have new diplomacy that got rid of them. We didn't develop new technological solutions. What we did was we realized they weren't useful technology. You don't have to disinvent how to make chariots. No one uses chariots for national security today. Um, it's, it's exactly right. Um, something else I was going to say, oh, I've got some new work coming out. I don't want to tell you about it exactly. I want to tease you with it a little bit. I apologize, but it's- Keep us on our toes. <laughs> I think it's really going to be big. It seems to me that there is a correlation between the existence of nuclear weapons and hope in America. You may recall that we were once pretty hopeful country. We were always you know, going around bragging about how we could do anything. We sent people to the moon and, and all this stuff. And, uh, and somehow now we can't even get infrastructure repaired or, you know, do anything about something vital like climate change. And uh, everything seems deadlocked. And, and there are a series of social indicators that have been largely overlooked that I think, that I think undeniably show that nuclear weapons harm us every day, even if they're not used. And I don't want to say more, and I apologize for, but it's, I just, I'm really excited. I'm working on it right now, trying to get it ready for publication. So it's, it's at the top of my mind. I think the, I think the fact that people don't talk about nuclear weapons is entirely reasonable. You know, a lot of anti-nuclear activists are always moaning and saying, why are people so stupid? They don't face this danger. Well, if you lived in a house under a cliff, and there's a giant rock teetering over your house, getting ready to fall at any time. You wouldn't lie awake at night and wonder, listen to the sound of the wind and wonder if you hear the first sounds of the rock falling. You wouldn't talk about it every morning at the breakfast table. What you would do, it's a danger that you can't do anything about. And so what you would do is you would do your best to ignore it. The key is experts and government officials have persuaded ordinary people that there's nothing that can be done about nuclear weapons, that they will always exist. And that's extraordinarily pernicious because what it does is it drives people's fears underground because then they make an, uh, a positive effort not to think about the subject. And so I think the key to getting people to think about nuclear weapons widespread 
is to convince them that, yeah, something can be done. There is a way out of this trap. To your point, Ward, that I think there is room to make these connections to people in terms of, you know, on the on a daily basis, people, what are people concerned about? Education for their kids, feeding their families, um, their economic security, their health care. Um, there is a way to draw nuclear weapons into all of these things in terms of where does so much of our government spending go to nuclear weapons? Well, we could be spending it on social welfare programs, improving education in the country, improving healthcare in the country. So, I mean, it is connected in our day-to-day lives, but just not in the ways that I think we normally see. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, it reminds me a lot of the way we talk about climate change and how for so long, we could see the effects of climate change and how negative an effect it was having on, you know, in the West, all these wildfires flooding on the east side of the country in the south. And there's maybe, I think, more of a mood in the country now, at least among younger generations to like say, no, we're, we're going to fix this. We're going to do things on an individual level, regional, federal level. And I think that can be maybe a model for nuclear weapons in the sense that it feels like something a lot of people think, oh, I can't do anything about this. This is an expert issue, like you said, but there is things we can do. So it comes back to, you know, disrupting on every level and bringing sort of attention and focus towards that maybe. Yeah, I I think success leads on to success. And if people believe that they can do something about climate change and it's a big problem, then why not take on the other big problem that's been out there even longer? So um yeah i agree it's it's good and i think this is something we should be looking to um marginalize communities for as well in terms of like a knowledge base because um in the civil rights movements in um like the 60s and 70s it was nuclear weapons were very much a part of this conversation in terms of like um diverting funding and how this affected um like um, black Americans and other people of color. And then you think about where, um, nuclear weapons or nuclear waste often end up or nuclear testing happens. It disproportionately affects communities of color. And there was a lot of activism surrounding this. And so I think there is so much opportunity to engage in this, um, as like a social justice movement and not just, um, it's bad for everyone. They're so sorry, lost my train of thought. That's but, okay. but I, I agree. And the more the, you know, the more you are living close to the edge, the more those arguments that, you know, you could have a hospital in your area, except we don't, we can't afford it because we don't, we spent money on a nuclear weapon or whatever, or you could have more supplies in your kid's school but we can't afford it because we diverted that money to nuclear weapons. And so, you know, I, well, school funding is typically local, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. And the fact is um, it is tends to be marginalized populations where the testing got done, where the people who worked in the uranium mines came from uh, poor often uh, Native American populations and, and right down the line. So, you know, absolutely. Can I, let me, can I just say uh, something about, um, I was gonna say something about 
more about the realist argument about nuclear weapons. So absolutely, yes, please. The heart of it is two things. If you stop and think about real technology change, real adoption and abandonment, people use technology because it's useful or to them in some way. And they abandon it because it's not very useful or it's dangerous or it's not very useful and it's dangerous. So it doesn't have anything to do with disinvention. It's actually the, the heart of the matter seems to me is a utility argument about nuclear weapons. Are they really useful? And a danger argument, what is the actual risk? Um, and it's pretty clear that the utility of nuclear weapons is quite small. After all, they haven't been used for 70 years. If you had a tool in the basement that hung on the wall for 70 years, would you call that your most important and most useful tool? No, you'd say, I gotta throw this thing out. This is obviously not something that I'm ever going to need. And, um, or at least it would be evidence to start the conversation. And then you look at um, uh, Korea in the 1950s. Ike comes into power and he wants to use nuclear weapons in Korea, or at least he says, let's explore it. The National Security Council goes away and they do a military study. The study is still classified, but the National Security Council conversation is not. And what they say to Ike is, we could use nuclear weapons in Korea, but we'd have to use so many in order to be effective that it would undercut nuclear weapons' reputation for being awesome and the most, the ultimate weapon. And even then the Chinese might not surrender and, and pull out. So they choose not to use them. Uh, they offer them, they offer three tactical nuclear weapons to the French when the French forces are surrounded at Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam. The French turn them down and say, we don't want anything to do with it. 1968, when U.S. forces are surrounded at Quezon in Vietnam, General Westmoreland calls for uh, goes to, calls to Washington to use tactical nuclear weapons, and they turn him down. And and on and on and on, military experts, when presented with the opportunity to use nuclear weapons in the Gulf War, Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney says, uh, "Let's explore using nukes. It's perfect. It's desert. There are no civilians. It's flat. The terrain is." I, he doesn't say this. This is what I'm imagining. He said, "Train's ideal." And so then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Colin Powell does a study and they look at how many nuclear weapons it would take to take out just one armored division, Iraqi armored division. And the results are so discouraging, they gather up all the copies of the report and burn them and never talk about the issue again. So it doesn't sound like nukes are all that useful. We've talked for years and decades about defending Europe with nuclear, with tactical nuclear weapons. And then in 1991, George Herbert Walker Bush said, we're gonna pull all of our tactical, not all, almost all our tactical nuclear weapons out of Europe and we'll defend it conventionally. And no one made a fuss. There weren't generals pounding on the table in front of congressional hearings saying, these weapons are vital for our defense. If we don't have them, we can't possibly win on the battlefield. It just, it's, if you look at the, the factual record, it's obvious that nuclear weapons are not very useful and militarily, and it's not hard to see why. They spread so much radiation that you basically have to wait till the wind stops blowing in order to make an attack. 
I mean, it's a little bit like the age of sail when the wind had to be in the right direction before your fleet could attack the other fleet. Is that really the way we want to defend the United States of America is waiting for the wind to be blown in the right direction? And then, or the alternative is to go ahead and use the weapons willy-nilly and have all the soldiers wear these incredible large Michelin man suits. And, you know, you have to wait while all military efforts grind to a halt while you wipe and clean every surface of radiation. Or you have to be willing to let your own soldiers die. And that's not uh, a very inviting prospect and it doesn't sound like it's a very useful weapon. So that's one. They talk, we talk about them as the ultimate weapon, but they don't seem to be that useful. Well, people say, well, you can attack other countries' homelands. Problem with that is, yeah, you can slaughter people who don't have nuclear weapons, but if you attack a country that has nuclear weapons, the notion that you could win a nuclear war kind of emerges in the early 60s. And it's this notion that there are two giants in the world and everyone else is a Lilliputian. So if the two giants slug it out and they get devastated and they're only as tall as, half as tall as they were, then you can imagine one of them recovering more quickly and then quote unquote winning the war. But in today's world, that is impossible because it's a world with three or four or maybe more giants. US fights a nuclear war with Russia, China dominates the world. US fights a nuclear war with China, the Russians take over. Maybe even the Europe, a united Europe would, would uh, end up in charge if we fought both China and Russia at the same time. Fighting a nuclear war, all that does is it ensures that you will be starving, devastated, and no longer in control of your own destiny. So it's really hard to think of any, any practical military use for nuclear weapons. I know I'm being really long with this answer, I apologize. This is kind of the, the heart of it. The, the second, so what people say is, well, we don't really want to use nuclear weapons, all that military stuff. Of course, they're not great weapons, but they're great for deterrence and it's worked for 70 years, so it must be fine. Which is a terrific argument, except that it's, it's so easy to prove it wrong that a 12-year-old could do it. Um, and it's three short sentences. First, human beings are fallible. All of us, from the highest leader to the lowest soldier, we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Second, human beings are involved in nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence isn't a machine that sits on its own in the corner and you know, hums along quietly while we do nothing and enjoy safety. Human beings are involved at every step. We make the threats, Others, other human beings evaluate those threats and decide how to respond. So if human beings are prone to folly, and we are, and if human beings are involved in nuclear deterrence, and we are involved at every step, then by definition, nuclear deterrence is inherently flawed. It will fail. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And that's just human nature and logic. That's not, that's not some sort of fancy theory. And so 
you know, we've been lucky for 70 years and that's terrific. We should all be grateful. But as a realist, I don't think it makes sense to continue to tempt fate uh, and rely on luck to preserve the United States. I just wanted to say, I think what you demonstrated really well, which I, I really liked and it got me thinking is that you're like, this isn't like some fancy, very difficult theory. It's just logic which makes it accessible for everyone. This isn't something you need like a master's, any kind of education to understand. And that's what I think makes it such a compelling argument for you know, people across the country and outside of it as well. It just you know, lowers the bar. It's, it's, you know, you don't have to know how a car engine works to be able to have a, a reasoned, a well-reasoned opinion on how fast the speed limit should be in front of your house. You know, this whole thing that there's special knowledge and secrets and only physicists and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's silly. That You just need to know what people are like and, and if we've been foolish in the past. <laughs> and what Winston Churchill once called the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. So <laughs> well, I don't think it's hard. Um, I, and I think to your point or your multiple points earlier about um, logic and it doesn't make sense that we have them. I think a lot of people would agree with you, even um, other realists included, um, but they would say that, well, we can't give them up first. It would have to be, you know, Russia, China, North Korea. They have to give them up before we can give them up. Um, and what would... And to some, like, to some extent, I can see their point. Okay. It's like, yes, your biggest threats still possess nuclear weapons. I can see why that would be frightening for you. Um, but what would you say to those, those critics of um, this, this like abandonment or disarmament policy? Yeah. Well, I don't think they have to, but I don't think we have to give up nuclear weapons first. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. I think we have to give up believing in nuclear weapons first. We could keep all the weapons and just, if the president got up and said, <clears throat> look, nuclear weapons are stupid weapons. We've just recently realized this. We think they're obsolete. We have some really gee whiz weapons that we're gonna use that are really you know, precise and intelligent, whatever he says to make people feel good. Um, but we're gonna, we think they're obsolete and we think they ought to go and we're gonna work to get rid of them worldwide. And we'll build a coalition and we'll persuade people because these arguments are not complicated. And we're not gonna dismantle a single weapon until everybody's on board, but we're ready to go. And I think you're exactly right. I think at an intuitive level, almost everyone grasps that nuclear weapons are stupid weapons and they can't last forever because ordinary people get what reality is. And so um, I think there's a world, you know, surveys consistently show that 60 to 70% of Americans would get rid of nuclear weapons if they could, they don't like them. So there's this built-in reservoir of doubt about and skepticism about the weapons. It's just, you need to make these common sense arguments and kind of dispel all the smoke of, um, expertise and stuff. So I, I think 
if the United States led the way and started arguing in international fora that, you know, we need to get rid of these weapons and hear all the reasons why, I think that would be very persuasive and probably the British would love to go along. They only, they spend 10% of their defense budget on nuclear weapons. Like the French are vulnerable because they've never thought seriously about the problems with nuclear weapons. The Indians might come along. They've never really loved nuclear weapons as weapons. They love them as a symbol of their um, technological sophistication. But, and, you know, you might even be able to talk China into it. China um, has never had a large, in the past, never had a large arsenal of weapons that could hit the United States. They don't seem to have bought into the uh, U.S.-Russian thinking that you've got to have thousands and thousands. For a long time, they had 20 nuclear weapons that could reach the U.S. So imagine that the U.S. denounces nuclear weapons and one of its allies comes along, or NATO decides to go non-nuclear, because there's a lot of domestic support in NATO countries against nuclear weapons. And then China or India decides to join the coalition, and pretty soon there are three or four countries that are against nuclear weapons. And then you start to build a a consensus, and you just have to work on the hard cases, Israel, Pakistan and North Korea. And China leans on North Korea and the United States leans on Israel. And eventually we talk Pakistan around and now you've got a worldwide consensus. And uh, the hard part's over. Once there was a consensus for a chemical weapons treaty, it, it didn't take 30 years to negotiate. You know, It was barely a couple of years before they uh, put the whole thing together. So I think it's, you know, depending on how long Obama lives, I don't think it's unrealistic to imagine eliminating nuclear weapons in his lifetime. That's such a great optimistic note to like end on. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> well, I, I am, it seems like a funny combination, but I am a realist who is at least guardedly optimistic. I think that this is, I think this is a problem. You know, when kids get caught up in some nightmare and it looms really large and, you know, they lie in bed and everything seems threatening. And, you know, this is a open the curtains and let the sunlight moment in. And, and when you look at the ordinary world and see the light of day and realize that, you know, there's going to be another morning and it's not the end of the world. And that really you were, ca- you were held captive by your fears. And fundamentally is, you know, I said before, the United States uh, used to believe that we would always be great. And, you know, that's a little bit patriotic exaggeration, but, you know, we seriously, when we were bored in the 60s, we said, okay, let's go to the moon because it'll be hard. Let's t- try something that's a real challenge. Come on. And then we went. And, and that kind of, uh, the world needs a country that has that kind of swagger and, and optimism and, and enthusiasm for the future. And so I, I think it's possible. I think it's, it's just a matter of 
not listening to the doom people and not letting people talk us into their expertise is more than we could ever imagine. And um, just looking realistically at nuclear weapons and shaking our heads and saying, why did we ever get involved with this stuff? I think that's definitely something that not only nuclear politics uh, or followers of nuclear politics need, but everyone involved in politics at that point needs is more optimism. Um, thank you so much for thank all your time and your insight. Um, this has been great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I really like the podcast and I hope you have a lot of success. Such a great conversation. It was great. It was such a good conversation. I was thinking about the revolution in military affairs towards cyber and gray zone warfare and how like nukes are so poorly suited for both of those fields going into the future. Like maybe that will have some sort of impact as well. Oh my God. That's like all my career research was on artificial intelligence yeah. and nuclear weapon systems. And it's the most terrifying thing. It's horrible. I'm like, let's not, there's just so much room for like accidental war. And yeah. it's just, let's not. I mean, I definitely don't consider myself a realist um, mm -hmm. in any sense of the word, um, but it was interesting to hear how many perspectives we agreed on, even though we operate um, and view IR through very, very different theoretical lenses. Yeah, I think it got me thinking back to the conversation we had with Shine and Catherine um, and just the importance of being empathetic, you know, when we talk to people and taking, you know, going towards things with this just much more thoughtful perspective rather than being like, you're a realist, I don't like you, you know, you, you like war, all of these things. And it's just makes me think a lot about the normative stance or the ontological stance that you come to an argument with has such an impact on how you interpret like a theoretical lens and how you think about a particular issue. It was such a great conversation overall. Um, I'm, I was so excited to have Ward on to the podcast today. I know, me too. I feel like I know, I'm interested, I'm interested to hear about his new publication. I'm very excited. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to have him back on to talk about that argument against nuclear weapons. But until then, you can find us at disruptrcp at gmail.com or disruptrcp on Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening and have a good day.